Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning, and for those of you that are joining us via live stream, um, we welcome you. We're thankful that you are joining with us. Um, If you are visiting Gateway Bible Church, you're more than welcome to be here. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we want you to know that um, it is our habit and our practice to work through a book of the Bible and just to let it speak, and uh, we are presently working our way through the book of Acts, and that is where we find ourselves today, Acts chapter 6. And we're going to read a little bit differently today. We're going to read verses 8 through 7-1, and then we're going to kind of jump ahead in the story and pick up at verse 54 uh, through verse 60. This is the narrative portion of the life of Stephen. And although our focus is going to be on the front end, I think having the, the back end helps us get a better picture of what's going on. So let's stand together. Um, Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of, and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, we are humbled by what you have chosen to give us in your word. As we gaze into the life of Stephen, Lord, we are shocked, not only by his example, but his tenacity. And Lord, I ask this morning, as we humble ourselves before you, 
that you would have your way with us, that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us. Lord, what we are not, that you would make us. And Lord, what we, what we have not, Lord, you would give us. And Lord, although that's a prayer that we, uh, we say every Sunday, Lord, we mean it genuinely today in all of its fullness, Lord. We want you to be at work in our lives this morning. And Lord, I ask as your messenger that I would simply be your mouthpiece and that you would receive all the praise and glory that you are due this morning. We need your help, Lord. Fill us now with your truth, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever had a time when you encounter a situation or maybe you're watching a movie or maybe you're reading a book or maybe you're just out visiting a place and, and, and you have this kind of strange feeling. There's something in you that's saying, there's something familiar about what I'm seeing there's something familiar about what I'm, what I'm watching or what I'm listening to, or there's something familiar about this place. I just, I just can't put my finger on it. It's like I've been here before. It's like I've read this story before. It's like I've, I've watched this movie before, but I haven't. But there's a sense in which there's something there that, that I should know, I should see, or that, that I should connect to. I remember uh, a while back, my wife and I were, we're going to Alameda for a breakfast, and we were there on our way, kind of waiting for that breakfast, and we encountered a young man in his late 20s there really kind of uh, trying to promote a particular product. And I started to talk to him, and then, and then it hit me because he looked just like a pastor friend of mine. And it, it, was, it was so strange to me because as I talked with him, his mannerisms, the way he laughed, the way he smiled, his, his body structure, his beard, his mouth, his teeth, his ears, all of it. Just like, he looked just like my friend who was pastoring in Alameda. And I'm thinking, this is, this isn't him because I had lunch with him a couple of days before that and he was like 30 something years old, married and had children. And this guy was like 26 or so and I thought, well, maybe it's his brother. And when I met my, my pastor friend, he's like, I have no idea who this person is. It wasn't me at all. But it was so uncanny because he just looked and seemed and acted and behaved just like my friend. There's a word that's become somewhat more well-known from the English language, or so the German language that describes this phenomenon. It's called having a doppelganger. In other words, it's a person who is like a double counterpart of another living person. Someone out there looks just like you, acts just like you, behaves just like you, and it's strange. My son Gavin has a doppelganger. Um, his doppelganger is a man by the name of Paco Alcacer, who is a, a Spanish soccer player, plays for the national team, and for Villarreal. And um, you look at the pictures and the mannerisms, how he runs how he smiles, his facial hair, his structure, um, his eyes, his ears, um, his receding hairline, all look like my son. It's, it's so strange. Well, a while back when we were in the beginnings of starting Gateway, I actually had a really unusual experience. 
back in that time, I didn't have an office at home. I still had kids at home. We didn't have an office for the church, and we were just kind of like starting up the church. And my office was Panera and Starbucks. You would see me in one of those two places every day. And I was at Starbucks one day, working hard on what I was doing, studying, whatever it was, and hammering away on my, 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 uh, my computer. And I heard this woman's voice saying, excuse me, sir, excuse me. And so I looked over to her and I said, yes, can I help you? And she's like, are you Billy Bob Thornton? And I said, no, I don't even know who Billy Bob Thornton is. And she's like, you look just like him. I'm sitting here, I'm looking, I was like, you, Billy Bob Thornton's here. And I'm like, no, he's not. It's, it's, it's just me. And she's like, has anyone ever told you you look like Billy Bob Thornton? I was like, nope, never. This is the first time. The next day I was in Panera, and I'm not lying. I'm hammering away on my computer, doing my work, and I hear a, a man's voice, and he says, Sir, can I, can I ask you a question? I was like, well, sure, you can ask me a question. Are you Billy Bob Thornton? <laughs> I'm just like, what? I, I mean, unless this is some kind of like conspiracy theory or something going on there, I could not imagine what was going on. This is true. I'm not telling you a lie. This is actually what happened. In the space of two days, two separate people in two separate locations approached me thinking that I'm Billy Bob Thornton. Now, I went online, of course, to figure out who this guy is. And I'm like, I guess I can see the resemblance. I guess maybe I was a little skinnier back then. And I did have a soul patch and all that kind of stuff. It was just kind of weird and strange. But that is the only time anyone has ever asked me the question, are you Billy Bob Thornton? I mean, never before. And yet for them, I looked like him because I had some similar characteristics, apparently. Now you're like, where am I going with this, Pastor Rod? It's a good question. Now, friends, as I was studying through this passage, this is how I felt when I looked at the life of Stephen. I was amazed by his tenacity in, in the face of this, this hostile opposition. I was amazed at his gentleness and his godly character. I was amazed at the way he made his defense standing in the presence of the Sanhedrin. But I was convinced that there was something familiar going on here. And as I was reading, it, it, the penny finally dropped. And I realized and I understood what it was that I was seeing here. Now, we remember Stephen because we, we looked at him last week. He's briefly introduced by Luke as one of the seven uh, chosen to assist the elders in caring for the, the Hellenist widows. But the only account of his life is given to us here in Acts chapter 6, verses 8, through chapter 8, verses 1. And this section, this, this longer section, can be divided into three parts. We read the beginning, we read the end. The beginning part, you might say, is the accusation. The middle part would be his defense and the last part would be his, his murder, all right? And those are the real three sections of his life. And this is the only record that we have of him in Scripture. Why would Luke choose to bring about uh, Stephen uh, in this context in this way? Well, Luke gives us an account of Stephen 
for several reasons, but I think the primary reason is to show us that you don't have to be an apostle to be a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a hostile context. Sometimes we have the attitude, well, maybe the apostles, or maybe a pastor, or maybe this great spiritual leader, they can handle living in a hostile context, but I could never do that. And the life of Stephen is screaming at us, yes, you can. Now, what is so spectacular about the Stephen account here in Acts chapter 6 and 7 is the similarity of Stephen's encounter with the Hellenist Jews, which we'll see in just a minute, with that of the encounter that Jesus had with the Sanhedrin himself. In other words, when I was reading the story of Stephen, I was thinking, I've, I've seen that before. I remember that before. This comes from somewhere. And, and a gentleman by the name of Ben Witherington gives us 10 parallels between the passion of Jesus and the martyrdom of Stephen. Let me just highlight them for you. You can kind of go through and assess them for yourself. Uh, His trial before the high priests in the Sanhedrin. Both of them had this going. The false witnesses. The testimony concerning the destruction of the temple. The temple made with hands, which you'll you'll see next week as as we go through his defense. The son of man uh, uh, saying, which we find in his defense. The charge of blasphemy. The high priest's question. The committal of uh, his spirit. The crying out with a loud voice. The intercession for his enemies' forgiveness. So what's going on here? What does all this tell us? It tells us that simple Ordinary Christians like Stephen, like you, like me, who are not apostles, but servants or deacons in the church, can truly live like Christ, can speak like Christ, and can die like Christ. In other words, Stephen's example encourages us to live well, to speak well, to die well. It teaches us that our lives, our speech, and our death in a hostile world, can be the means for glorifying God, for pointing to Christ, and for being a faithful witness. So when we look at the example of Stephen, we see, first of all, his Christ-like life. Secondly, his Christ-like witness in what he says in his defense. And third, his Christ-like death as he is murdered as an innocent man. Stephen models for us what it looks like to live faithfully as followers of Christ in a hostile world. And friends, that is our proposition for the whole section, living faithfully as a follower of Christ in a hostile world. But for this particular section, this area, this is the first point. You can move the slide over to the next one there, proposition. What we'll focus on here is Stephen's Christ-like Life. And what we're going to see there is this call to be committed to live a Christ-like life. Luke is zeroing in on Stephen's life, his interaction. And there's not a lot of data there, but there's a lot that we can be we can see even with the data that he gives us here. And to be committed to a Christ-like life, there are three things that we're going to see flow out of this passage. 
It demands character. It engenders condemnation, and it elicits courage. Now, we're going to see those words and those statements in just a bit. Let's begin by talking about Stephen's character. Stephen's character. Living faithfully for Christ in a hostile world demands character, godly character. Not worldly character, but godly character. Notice what it says in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, what we can be sure of is that Luke here in in chapter 6 is making a point to highlight and to focus in on Stephen's character. He's been slowly leaking it out since the beginning of chapter 6. Right? He he talks about, uh, about... his character in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, when he describes what, what these men are to look like that are going to take this on this responsibility as deacons. And so he, he describes in particular when he lists Stephen a couple of characteristics. And I want us to notice, first of all, is that, is that Stephen's is, I want you to notice, first of all, Stephen's good reputation. Notice all these descriptive words like Luke is giving us here, generally speaking, Stephen is a man of good repute. He's a man who has a good reputation among the believers. He's been observed. His life has been assessed. People have watched him. They've seen his godly character. And as a man with a godly character, he is marked by being full of a number of characteristics and attributes. You notice that? Just throughout these little descriptions, he's full up, he's full as he's full up. Well, what is he full of? There's five things. First of all, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's controlled by and submissive to the teaching and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Second, he's full of wisdom. The idea of wisdom is skill, the skill of handling the Word of God, the skill of understanding the spiritual realities that have been revealed to him, to know it, to defend it, and to apply it. He's full of faith. He is controlled by truth. And because he's controlled by truth, he's able to stand up against those that are opposing him. He's full of grace. This is the enabling care and the help that comes from the Holy Spirit. And he's full of power. This is the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So what Luke is doing here is he wants us to see that Stephen is a spirit-filled Christian firmly in the grip of a sovereign God, controlled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the things that God values. They're, They're at work in him. And he is an example worth our attention and our emulation. Stephen's good reputation. But notice also in our text, it says here that Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here we have Stephen's good deeds. If we remember these signs and wonders from the life of Jesus, Jesus went around healing the sick, casting out demons, right? All those things. Those are all good deeds. Those are all kind deeds. But they were never the end in of themselves. But it wasn't as if Jesus was going around just saying, you know, zap, 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 now look at me. He genuinely cared about people. So when people were struggling and they had certain ailments and he healed them, he was doing that out of his love for them, out of his his kindness for them. Those healings weren't necessarily salvific, 
but they were, in a human sense, on an earthly sense, wonderful for those people, and used them as the means by saying, listen to the message that I have to bring. And, this, and Stephen's doing the same thing. And so honing in here on these doing great wonders and signs, it's not just that Stephen was out there, you know, kind of doing these kind of magical things out there. He was certainly empowered by the Holy Spirit and was able to cast out demons or heal people of their diseases as one who had, been, had, had his hands laid on by the apostles. But the, the, the part we want to see here is that he was doing this because he cared about people. And that's evident why he was chosen to serve as a deacon in the first place, to take care of these, these Hellenist widows. He was doing good deeds. So Luke doesn't specify which great signs and wonders were taking place in Stephen's uh, ministry. We can, however, get that picture that as he was out serving these Hellenist widows, getting among the people, he's meeting people, he's interacting with people who are struggling, who are hurting, who are, who are suffering, and he's exercising the spiritual gifts that he has been given in this particular era to meet the needs of the people, to do good works. This is what he's doing. And as he's encountering these needs, he's, he's using these supernatural uh, gifts to provide relief for those who are ill or demon-possessed. Now just turn back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, if you would. In fact, it might be up there. It is. What we have here is the prayer of the disciples before they were going out to do this ministry. And, and they prayed for God's help. Notice what it says. And now, Lord, this is a prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal uh, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with all boldness. This is what we're seeing fulfilled in the life of Stephen. This prayer is being answered as the word of God goes out by means of these signs and wonders, these good deeds. So Stephen's good reputation, Stephen's good deeds. But notice also, and we get just a hint of it here, Stephen's faithful witness. Because as Stephen went among the people to help them with their practical needs, he also took opportunities to witness to the people. That was the whole point of doing those good deeds, was to have a platform to be able to speak to them. You know, our friends in Bolivia, Matias Jr. and Chrysia. Matias is a doctor, Chrysia is a nurse. And they're able to go out into these remote villages and they're able to do medical things, but they do that for the purpose of having a platform to be able to speak about the things of God to the people that are there. So this is what, this is what Stephen's doing. He's using the, these signs and wonders as a platform now to speak. And so here we have a faithful follower of Christ who has a good reputation among the brethren as controlled by the Spirit of God, serving the Lord by meeting the needs of the people in the power of the Holy Spirit, and as there is opportunity, giving testimony to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Stephen is a picture here for us of any and all of us who call ourselves Christians. He's not just some superhero Christian but a regular Christian committed to Christ and his mission. And it's, it's a call for us, friends, as Christians, to place ourselves actively and continually in the channels of God's transforming grace. 
so that we can grow in our godly character through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, these channels of God's transforming grace are the, 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 the spiritual discipline, so to speak, that God has given us to, to place ourselves in. We, we, we place ourselves under the Bible. Why do we do that? Because we, wanna, we want the Word of God to teach us and to feed us and to guide us. So we, we sit under the preaching of the Word. We, we, we place ourselves under the teaching of the Word through small groups or the meditation of God's Word in our own personal Bible study, or the application of God's Word at a home group setting, or or an ongoing influence of God's Word, maybe through good podcasts and things like that. God uses all of these forms of Bible intake as a means to move us toward maturity. And that is why we seek to pursue the other spiritual disciplines, whether it's prayer, or fasting, or giving, or worship, or stewardship, or serving, because they're all channels through which God is strengthening us and growing us to be mature in Christ, to exercise ourselves toward godliness is what the Word of God says. Now, friends, the goal is always to be filled or controlled by the Spirit of God in all that we do. So here's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of power, full of faith. And he's going out and he's placing himself in a context where he can serve, he can do good deeds, but most importantly, he can testify because he knows that is what the people ultimately need. Now, you're maybe not going to be going out and doing signs and wonders, but you're going out to do good deeds. You do that as a Christian. Hopefully, that's some of the things that you're doing, but they're not an end in themselves. They're a means to provide a platform to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So we want to be filled with the Spirit. That's not a subjective feeling thing. That's an objective reality. If you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. And now your responsibility is to be submissive to him and to learn more about his work in you by means of the Holy Holy Spirit's work through the Word of God. So that's Stephen's character. And if we're going to live faithfully for Christ in a hostile world, it demands character. Secondly, Stephen's condemnation. Living faithfully for Christ in a hostile world engenders condemnation. The word of engender means this is going to be the result. If you live this way, you're attracting. It's just going to create condemnation from others. So when this follower of Christ is marked by a good reputation and good deeds, he begins to testify to the things of God, uh, in particular the, the truth of Christ and his gospel. He will face condemnation by those who will be opposed to this gospel. And the implication of this passage here is that Stephen has been faithful to proclaim and to, to spread the gospel. He's been a faithful witness. He's been speaking boldly and publicly among the people. But what happens next is that there are some Jews who do not like what he's saying. And so now they come and they seek to oppose him. Now, who are these people? Let's think first about the identity of the opposition. In verse 9, we find that listed for us. It says, then some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, we need to remind ourselves what we learned last week. 
is that there were really two kinds of Jews that were in Israel at that point in time, particularly in Jerusalem. There were the Hebrew Jews. Those were the ones who had lived in Jerusalem and in Palestine uh, up until that time. Then there were the Hellenistic Jews. Those were the Jews that had been, you know, had been, their families had been taken out because of the diaspora, and they had taken on Hellenistic culture and were speaking Greek, whereas the, the, the Hebrew Jews primarily spoke Aramaic. All right, so you have these two different groups. The description here, as we look at the list here, is of opposition coming from the Hellenistic Jews. There were, at this point in time, synagogues that, one might want to say, catered to the Hebrew Jews because of language purposes and culture, and there were synagogues that catered to those who were Hellenistic uh, Jews because of language and culture. We, we have that today, don't we? we people will, will choose to go to a church because of language and because of culture. We understand that. You, you are going to go someplace where you understand and you have some connection with the culture of the people that are there. And so more than likely what we have here is, is probably one to three synagogues that are being talked about. And likely the men that are listed here, the freedmen, these are, these are people who once were slaves who now have been freed, and they are attending a particular synagogue, so maybe that's one synagogue. Then you have the the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, then you have the Cilicians and Asians, so maybe we have three synagogues here. We don't know specifically, we're not told. But more than likely, these names are the names of leaders of those particular synagogues. Now, one distinction needs to be made. In the Jewish economy of things, there's the temple, and the temple is the holy site, and the temple is where you go to pilgrimage three times a year. It's also where you go and you offer sacrifices for your sins so you can be reconciled to God. The synagogue is more like what we understand a church to be. It's where you're going to have teaching. It's where you're going to have community. It's where you meet weekly. It's where you learn about the traditions. It's where you distribute um, food to help the people, things like that. So we have the temple and we have the synagogue. What's being talked about here then are the the synagogues, right? But the point here is this, that these are Hellenist Jews that are turning on Stephen. Now remember, remember, because of what we looked at last week, a problem rose up because of some kind of a problem between the the Hellenist Jews and the, the Hebrew Jews because the widows of the Hellenist Jews were not being cared for, right? So... The implication there is that Hellenist Jews were coming to faith. In fact, we know that. Why? Because the men that were chosen to be those seven were all Hellenist Jews. Now, I'm just trying to paint a picture here because we're we're seeing here now that Stephen is ministering in a particular context to a subset of Judaism that are the Hellenist Jews. And some of them are actually coming to faith but many of them, in particular the leaders of the synagogues, are rising up against him. And so we can say here that Stephen is ministering to the people that he identifies with, because he's a Hellenist Jew, but they, uh, they were rejecting him. And it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that just as Jesus was rejected by his own people, Scripture says, so Stephen is rejected by his own Hellenist Jews. And although the gospel was making roads in the Hellenist uh, Jewish context, there were many 
who when they heard his teaching were turning against him. So this is the identity of these people. Now secondly, I want you to notice here the strategy of the opposition. They don't appreciate what Stephen is saying in his public teaching. They begin to oppose him. And they begin by using what I would call legitimate means. They're disputing with him. If you notice back in verse 9, it says they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, this idea of disputing is, is, is really it's a word that's used to talk about a formal debate. And the idea of that is, all right, Stephen, you tell us what you think, and we'll give you time to make your argument, and then we'll stand up, and we'll make our argument to counter what your argument is. The problem is that when they did that, Stephen's wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking was too much for them. Isn't that what it says? But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand Stephen's arguments. Now, friends, this is similar to the many encounters Jesus had with the Pharisees and scribes that we have in the Gospels. They would come thinking that they would trick him because they thought they knew the word. And when they would come, he would, he would, in a sense, ridicule him, not in the sense because he was trying to be you know, ridiculing them, but he would just say, well, this is what the Scripture actually says. And I'm showing you what the Scripture actually says. And, and he just completely turns around their argument. And they walk away because they can't answer it. So what Jesus was doing is what Stephen now is doing as he's debating with these people. Now, friends, in the same way that Stephen, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, speaks to his opponents with clarity from the Scriptures, and they don't have any argument to counter what Stephen's saying, they are frustrated at every point. And it's a reminder, friends, of what the Apostle Peter will say to us later. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make what? A defense to anyone who asks for you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, you could just write Stephen's name next to that verse. I mean, he is just embodying that reality, isn't he? Having the right answers, however, doesn't guarantee a welcoming response. (laughs) But it is what God has called us to pursue no matter what. We really have nothing to say other than that which has been revealed to us in the Scriptures. Let me just share this with you. If I step outside of this pulpit and I'm no longer basing what I'm saying on the Word of God, I have nothing valuable to say. I'm not confident in that at all. I'm not confident in my own skill sure footing is on the word of God. This is the only thing we can say. And this is what ultimately Stephen is doing as he is disputing with them. The apostles have already testified, chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, the God of our fathers, speaking now to to the leadership and the Jews that are there. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I mean, this is the message of the gospel. And and here Stephen is proclaiming that same message, maybe in his own way, but he's giving the core realities of Jesus Christ 
and him crucified and him risen from the grave. So having listened and having interacted with Stephen on this, I want to say, legitimate means of disputing and unable to stand up against his wisdom and unwilling to admit defeat, the Hellenist Jews take on a new approach, and that is what I'm calling illegitimate means, propaganda. See, by this time, it's not a legitimate debate. It's now going to be a wave of propaganda. They will now seek to oppose Stephen and his gospel witness using three strategies. By the way, these aren't new strategies for this moment, and these are strategies that continue even to this day and will continue as the world continues on its way. The first one I'm calling instigation of false accusation, or to put it more in contemporary terms, fake news. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. The the words secretly instigated mean that they, they gathered some men to do something that was going to be underhanded. All right, they were going to coerce them or, or somehow convince them to put forward some ideas that are not true, to tell a lie. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, this is helpful for their cause because you don't take on Moses and you don't take on God. And when you do, it's considered blasphemy. And it's not what Stephen said. But that is what they claim Stephen said. Now, friends, here, this truth doesn't matter when you're intent on spreading a lie. It just doesn't matter. And in this case, they've already been defeated, and they know it by their arguments. So now they're going to use a different tool to get rid of Stephen and his gospel message, right? We call it fake news. And fake news, of course, is when someone makes a claim about something that someone said, when that that person didn't actually say it, but they present what they're saying as fact. And we see this almost every day in the news, don't we? We We get tired of it. Someone posts something on Twitter claiming that another person said such and such. And then a few days later, after the person has been roasted all over social media, the actual quote comes out, and what is claimed a few days earlier is now seen as the opposite of what was actually being said. But by that time, the damage has been done. And any kind of going back and kind of correcting yourself, if it is done at all, is buried somewhere like in page 59 of the newspaper. All right? I mean, just think about the recent dossier that all of the media outlets had to say, yeah, you know what, we weren't exactly right on that. Because it was all fake. These are just contemporary tactics, friends. Such tactics are a deliberate effort here to deceive and distort the truth. Now, friends, this also happens when the media goes off on their talking points because they're crafting news and they're crafting a narrative that is going to promote their agenda. Now, friends, I'm not trying to be political here by any means, but I'm trying to say you don't have to look far in politics to see this stuff, do you? This kind of behavior we should expect from an ungodly society. 
But hear this, it's not the kind of behavior that has any place in God's church. Yet we can get caught up with it. The instigation of false accusations. Secondly, the stirring up of the people. So they start with the fake news, and what do they do next? They seek to manipulate the crowds, right? Look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, that's a violent seizing, and brought him before the council. So unable to shut down Stephen's skillful responses and having established this fake news, now they... They work the crowd, so to speak, to to get all frenzied and to believe this stuff to the point that they are violently grabbing him and bringing him before the council. And all this, friends, is totally bogus. You can look it up in the dictionary. But it's a very clever and effective tactic to accomplish their agenda, shutting Stephen and his teaching down. But this is not a unique tactic. In fact, in the book of Acts, we have this a number of occasions. I'm just going to show you three. Turn in the book of Acts, because it's not going to be on the screen, at uh, chapter 13, verse 50. Chapter 13, verse 50. This is the tactic often of those who are opposed to Christ, to the apostles, and to the gospel. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Same tactic. Jump down to chapter 14 and verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So it's not just crowd frenzy, but it's saying things that are totally untrue about their brothers, meaning those who were Jews who had come to faith in Christ. Then chapter 17, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, haven't heard that before, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. This is crowd manipulation to deal with the people that we don't like because of what they're saying. And friends, this is the very same tactic used against Jesus when Pilate offered to release either Jesus or Barabbas in Mark chapter 15, verse 11. This is what we're told. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release them, Barabbas, instead. Truth didn't matter at that point. What mattered was the agenda of the opposition. And of course, when Pilate asked them again, the crowd shouted even louder, crucify him, crucify him. Well, where did they get that idea? They didn't come up with it themselves. Someone planted seeds in them, stirred them up. When we look around, at how our society works, we see the same tactic, don't we? It's used over and over and over again. When people have been exposed through logic or a healthy dialogue and they don't have a response, the facts are no longer the issue. The exposed will look to destroy you by spreading lies about what you, um, about who you are and about what you believe. 
And they will twist what you say, and then with those twisted claims, incite the crowds against you to condemn you. And all attempts then (laughs) to actually present the facts are perceived as something we should ignore, or they're perceived as evidence of guilt. This is the world in which we live, friends. But this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for thousands of years, and we find it right here in the life of Jesus and also in the life of Stephen. And it begs the question, friends, doesn't it? How easily are you stirred up to blindly follow the crowd? What does it take for you to hear something and be like, oh, wow, and get sucked into this crowd manipulation that happens so easily? Are you able to listen to the news, to the feeds on Facebook or Twitter or uh, to talking points in society with careful, critical thinking and a biblical perspective? Or do you tend to be swept up with what you're hearing and reading? And this can be on both the political sides, friends. Can you tell when you're being taken for a ride? And when your emotions are being stirred up by the crowds, or better, by the ones who are pulling the the, the puppet strings of the crowds, how can you be sure that the narrative that you're being told by the media is actually the truth? And I think that's that's a place we find ourselves in so much of the time, isn't it? And friends, this tactic is nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. And it will be used again, and again, and again. And so we should be wise to it. We should be able to see it for what it is and not kind of panic over it because Stephen is facing it. And if Stephen is facing it, then certainly we will face it. But we can also stand up against it. Third, setting up false witnesses, false testimony. Let's just read verses 13 and following. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, the temple and the law which they hold dear. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and he will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us. Now what were the accusations that were brought against Stephen? Well, that this Jesus would destroy the temple, and that Jesus would change the customs that Moses had delivered them, right? So in one sense, they were correct. There's elements of truth to what they're saying, but they were lying about what those things actually amounted to. What was Jesus actually saying? What was he meaning by what he was saying? What was he articulating there? And when we open God's word and we realize that what they were saying this amounted to is different than what Jesus said these things amounted to. These realities actually honored God. So what does Stephen mean by these things? Let's take one at a time, the destruction of the temple. For over 1,500 years, the tabernacle and the temple had been the place where sinful man could come to be reconciled with God through the sacrifice of, of innocent blood offered by priests. But the building made of stone cannot actually contain God. 
An offering of animal blood and priests who were themselves sinful can never really atone for people's sin. An atonement cover like the mercy seat made of gold and sprinkled with blood can never really hide people's law-breaking and covenant-breaking from God. But now, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, he has come. He is the tabernacle and the temple where God really can reside. He is the innocent blood that really can atone for, for sin. He is the perfect priest who can mediate between sinful man and a holy God. He is a cover for the Ark of the Covenant that can truly hide our law-breaking from the eyes of God. You see what's happening here? And so since all that the temple stood for is now accomplished in Jesus Christ, the physical building of the temple is obsolete. The temple is here in Jesus. And within one generation, it will be torn down. This is not blasphemy against God or Moses or the temple, friends, but the highest form of praise to God and honor to Moses and glory to the temple. This is God's work and will carrying on through the sacrifice who was once for all Jesus Christ himself. But when you're so stuck in your distorted system and you can't even understand the, the scriptures that are before you because you're blind to them, you will fight against God's providential progress in bringing his son as the Messiah that the people desperately wanted to have. That's the destruction of the temple. Secondly, there's the customs delivered by Moses. For these same 1,500 years, there have been long, detailed lists of ceremonies. We studied that when we went through Exodus. These are things that God put down to, to command Israel to obey. I mean, they had to go to the temple three times a year to, uh, to offer sacrifices, cattle, sheep, and goats, and birds, and wine, and grain. They had to go to, to human priests who would offer these sacrifices for them and atone for them. They had to wear certain clothes or abstain from certain foods or, or perform certain ceremonial kind of washings. And all of this, we're told, was a burden to them. But now, all these things represented in the temple are fulfilled, or in the law, I should say, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The covenant that required all these things has grown old. It's become desolate. It's been superseded by a new covenant. And to declare that this is not, to declare this is not blasphemy, friends. It is utter praise to God. I see, friends, they couldn't handle that. They couldn't see it. They couldn't embrace it. Now notice, having looked at these two things, Stephen's character and his condemnation, I want us now to, to, to turn to look at Stephen's courage. And here we're going to find out that living faithfully for Christ in a hostile world elicits courage. You're going to have to exercise courage in the face 
of such opposition. We read there in verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His false witnesses characterized Stephen and his gospel message as blasphemy against God, against the temple, against Moses. But this man standing before them, is he really the embodiment of evil? I mean, here's evil Stephen. I mean, here's this guy preaching blasphemy. But he was standing in the same place that Jesus had stood just a few months before. And you would think that in this situation, he would be very distressed. He's falsely accused of dishonoring God, of potentially facing a huge tongue lashing or likely a beating or even death. And yet, when the council looked at Stephen, the word their gaze, they're gazing intently, they're looking at him, having made all these accusations, his face looked like the face of an angel. My friends, some of you are pretty good looking, but very few of you have the face of an angel, except for my wife. She's the most angelic person Man, all right, good. Got to be careful here when I say these things. But I want you to hear this. There may be something going on here that is of spiritual significance because there was a man who they were just accusing Stephen of speaking blasphemy about, and his name is Moses. And you remember when Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God. He met with God, and when he comes down the mountain, he doesn't realize it, but his face is glowing. And if that is true, it's it's a way that God here is somewhat slapping these people in the face and say, look, you are accusing this man of blaspheming Moses, and yet look at his countenance. See, to have a face of an angel suggests that he has the appearance of one inspired by and in touch with God. It's Luke's way of saying, Stephen is not evil, but good. He's not guilty, but he's innocent. Stephen here is showing us how to respond to injustice and hostility in this world. And if we're honest, friends, when we are treated unjustly, when we face hostility, we don't respond with faces like angels, do we? It's usually... Or, or God's going to get you, or right? It's going to be that kind of stuff, as opposed to something deep and significant that allowed Stephen to respond in this way. Stephen teaches us much about living faithfully and speaking faithfully and enduring justice and hostility faithfully. His calm and peaceful and confident demeanor is not just his personality on display. Friends, what Luke wants us to see is that Stephen's courage came from being in the presence of God. And as we we just jump briefly to the end of the story, we see him standing, gazing into heaven. And who does he see but Jesus on his throne? His angelic face is because his affection is directed to Christ and no one else there. 
See, the psalmist says it this way. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, uh, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's standing there having all this accusation against him, and his only eyes are for Jesus. And that changes his demeanor. Now hear this. Those who live close to God will reflect his glory in their disposition. It will come out. You walking with God, you're less likely to get angry, to get perturbed, to be a Karen, whatever those things are today. You are going to respond to offense and hostility and injustice in a way that reflects a satisfaction and a joy and a confidence in God. See, as the whole council of the Sanhedrin gazed intently on Stephen, waiting for his response, Stephen saw only Christ. His gaze was upward. He was looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of his faith. And so we are compelled to learn from his example that true courage comes from Christ. It comes by the Holy Spirit, and it comes through meditating on his word and his gospel. As we bring this now to a close, I want to just emphasize that statement. Those who live close to God will reflect his glory in their disposition. Psalm 37.4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We looked at this last week in the introduction of the call to worship. And the point here that the psalmist is making is that when you delight in the Lord, he will change your desires so that your desires will be a reflection of his desires. See, that's those who live close to God will reflect his glory in their disposition. You spend time with God, it's going to affect how you live. Right? You marinate yourself in his word, it's going to have an effect on how you think and how you behave. Secondly, from Psalm 1, verse 3, be like a tree planted by the streams of water. What does a tree do? And the image there is saying this is what a spiritual person looks like. They're planted like a tree where the, the water is there to sustain them and to feed them and to nourish them. What does it look like? You will bear good fruit at the right time. In that season, I mean, Stephen's doing ministry among the people. He's taking care of the widows, and he's, he's doing signs and wonders. He cares about them. He's speaking the truth, and all of a sudden, boom, these people come, and they grab him. What are you going to do if you're Stephen? What are you going to do if it's your situation, your case? You're going to say, I want to be like that tree that's getting its nourishment from the, the water of the word, so that I can bear fruit in this particular season that glorifies God. And finally, I want you to notice what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So following Jesus, or follow Jesus, and you will be hated, you'll be despised, and you'll be persecuted. 
That's just a byproduct, friends, of living in a hostile world who doesn't want to hear the gospel. Now get this, there are many that do. I don't want you to think that you walk out of this door and everyone's going to come chasing after you and take you to jail. No, there's people that actually want the truth of the gospel that God is already working in and he's drawing them to himself, but there will always, always, always be opposition. So when the world watches your life, do they see Christ in you? Do they look at your life and do they say, huh, there's something going on there. And I would like to say to you, are you an imperfect but growing and maturing doppelganger of Christ. See, that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be pursuing being mirror images of Christ. Lots of them. Now, it's a good thing that they're not multiplying me or multiplying you. It's a good thing that the multiplication here is Christ. (laughs) Because he is... Holy, he's perfect, he's just, he's pure. He is the one who can meet their desperate, deep need through his gospel. Friends, we are to live for Christ. We are to commit ourselves to live for Christ in this life. Next week, we're going to look at in our witness and then in our death. Lord, help us today to take the things that we have seen here by this incredible example of Stephen and to realize, Lord, that we don't have to be an apostle to somehow be faithful in our living, in our witness, to have the kind of character that you want us to have so that we can be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You take ordinary, simple people like us and you say you have my Holy Spirit submit to him be filled with the Holy Spirit his power, his wisdom his grace, his faith oh Lord help us to be that help us to see the the example here and Lord not, not to be or to seek to be Stephen but to be encouraged to be what you want us to be like Stephen in our own context, in our own setting, with our own responsibilities, to live our lives in such a way where we are faithfully representing you. It's a hard task, Lord. Sometimes it's dangerous. Sometimes it's intimidating. But Lord, give us faith to have as our gaze you seated on your throne orchestrating all of the things that you want to take place through us on this earth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do and all that you have done, and in particular, Lord, for the gospel, for dying in our place and being that sacrifice once for all. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.